one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. I spend a lot of time in conversation with one of our listeners over Voxer, and he is a gun rights activist. He has become a friend. I like this person. I think he's smart and thoughtful, and I think he shares my grief over gun deaths in the United States, which is an important foundation, and I think a foundation that almost all of us would find with nearly any human, right, that we can come together over. We want this to stop. And so when I'm talking with him, I often will say, well, what about this? And he'll say, he has kind of this rubric that my proposals are going to be ineffective or unconstitutional. And sometimes he'll throw in ignorant, not directed at me, but at a particular proposal. (laughs) And I think that there is some fairness in his critiques, although I have recently said, look, through this lens, I'm going to strike out on something every single time. Right. If I can come up with something that would be really effective, you're going to say it's unconstitutional. (laughs) And if I can come up with something constitutional, you're going to tell me it's ineffective. And so I got to get out of that box in some way. I think the path out of that box is data. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. saddle again beth we're back from vacation 
The summer is ending. We're launching into what is going to be a very exciting fall, kicking off our Nuance Nation tour in less than two weeks, Sarah. I can't believe it. I know. Y'all, if you have not gotten your tickets yet and you've been hounding us for months to come to California, then what are you doing with your life? Because we're coming to California. Both parts, because it's a big old state. On Thursday, August 22nd, we will be in the Congregational Church of San Mateo, and we are happy to announce that our guest will be the Reverend of the Church, Penny Nixon. She is the Senior Minister of the Congregational Church, a United Church of Christ, and has been since 2007. She's a community leader, a political activist, has received tons of awards and recognition for her social justice work, and we can't wait to talk with Reverend Penny. We will also be at the Hillcrest Center for the Arts in Thousand Oaks on Saturday, August 24th. Sarah said there'll be a link in the show notes for you to buy your tickets. Get them while they're there, and we can't wait to see you all in California. As we wrap up our multiple weeks of vacation, half-vacation trips, we've got a lot to cover today. We're going to talk about several news items in the first section of the show. We will be talking about gun control and gun control proposals in the main segment of the show. And as always, we'll wrap up the show with what's on our mind outside politics. The main story over the weekend was that Jeffrey Epstein died by apparent suicide in prison, setting off all the deepest parts of the Internet's conspiracy theories. But you didn't have to look far for them because the president of the United States Mm -hmm. tweeted about conspiracy theories. And it is difficult. I'll be honest. I had a very difficult emotional reaction to learning that Jeffrey Epstein was dead, and I found myself very inclined to embrace a number of possibilities other than suicide. And then as I thought more about it, I thought, why should any of us be surprised anytime a person dies in prison? Because our prisons are dangerous and they are not well patrolled. And so this story could be exactly what it seems. And still be completely discouraging and heart-wrenching for victims and and deserving of the national attention that it's getting. Yes, yeah, suicide is the number one cause of death for those in jail or prison. So as reflected by the sad reality of those behind bars, it really shouldn't surprise us if anybody is found dead of suicide while in prison. It's really interesting. The Department of Justice hasn't really shared data on this in several years. We don't know the number of people that have died by suicide since like 2014 because they stopped sharing that information, which I'm always inclined to think there's a bigger story when we've decided we're not going to talk about it or measure it. I totally understand why Jeffrey Epstein, from the beginning, not just in his death, has fueled conspiracy theories, right? I mean, conspiracy theories are a psychological reaction to something we have difficulty understanding, and it is difficult to think about or try to understand somebody who would traffic in young girls. It just, even though we all know that's a reality, the specificity of which we are learning about Jeffrey Epstein and his crimes, there was a document released right before he was found dead that named some very high-profile figures, Governor Bill Richardson, Prince Andrew, people that participated in the sex trafficking ring. And it's not just the sex trafficking, and we have so much trouble thinking through this awful thing happening, but it's the wealth component 
because there's so many of these conspiracy theories like Pizzagate that play to this idea that the incredibly wealthy and powerful are perpetuating these massive conspiracies involving the abuse of children. And it's a fertile ground because there is some truth to the idea that this wealth and power protected Jeffrey Epstein and he was able to perpetuate these crimes for just that reason, right? It's like this this kernel of truth, these real problems that create this, this fertile ground for mistruths and for total lies and for, you know, massive global conspiracies when the explanation is just he was rich and had good lawyers who got him off. It's just there's so much caught up in this story that's that's like touches on experiences some of us have had or stories we've heard or just the reality that we all understand to a certain extent, which is when you are wealthy and when you have access, the rules don't apply to you in the same way. You know, that's true no matter whether he took his own life because he didn't want to face the impending consequences of that life, of that access, of that influence, of those crimes, or whether something more nefarious happened. When I started reading about Jeffrey Epstein and the charges against him, I found a report where a police officer in Florida who initially started investigating this said, you know, this story is not he said versus she said. This story is 50 she's with the exact Mm -hmm. same details about what happened inside his homes. He said, this is the most clear case I've ever seen. And what I hope can come of his death is that the Department of Justice will be under vastly more pressure to conduct this investigation thoroughly, to leave absolutely no lead unfollowed. Yep. And I also hope that his death can shine a light on the conditions in our prisons and can show that they are overcrowded and underfunded, that the conditions that people live in in our prisons are unacceptable, that that having our prisons in such a depraved state does not further justice. In this case, we are losing an opportunity to see justice done because we did not closely enough take care of someone who was in prison. And that Mm -hmm. happens more often than we think it does. Witnesses to key crimes die in our prisons. So many things that just do not perpetuate just outcomes occur because of the way we think about people who we incarcerate. And so if something good can come of the life and death of Jeffrey Epstein, I hope it is that. Well, and I think what's really frustrating to me about the whole thing is... There seems to be a certain glee in the way people engage with this story and particularly with the conspiracy theories. With a total disregard for the aspects of this story or our world in general that don't like fit your worldview, right? There's a lot of right-wing conspiracies about Jeffrey Epstein and a lot of completely ignoring the fact that the truth of his crimes came to light because of the dogged 
reporting made possible by our free press. There's a lot of gleefully engaging with this, with the conspiracies and with the story of Jeffrey Epstein, while ignoring the fact that the massive ice raids in Mississippi left children without guardians and therefore extremely vulnerable to abuse. Abuse and sexual abuse we've already seen happen in our custody. There were agents along the border. I think there was an agent in California that was arrested for sexually abusing unaccompanied children inside these facilities. And so if if what infuriates you about Jeffrey Epstein is the sexual abuse of children, then please channel that rage beyond just the perpetuating of conspiracy theories on Twitter. There are places where children are very vulnerable. There's a lot of reasons the girls in this story were very vulnerable. And so let's talk about that instead of getting only wrapped up in him and how evil he was and his wealth. You know, like there's just so many aspects to this to be outraged about. You don't have to channel it all into a conspiracy theory. That's right. This is not tabloid fodder. Mm -hmm. It is a prototypical model of human trafficking. It takes place across our country every day in much less salacious and interesting forms in terms of the way this is being portrayed in the media. But every single day, our friend and former ambassador Swanee Hunt wrote for the Boston Globe about how media coverage of this story is sickening because so often the girls in Jeffrey Epstein's orbit were described as young women, which Mm -hmm. she says makes us again label the women involved in these horrific crimes seem less like victims and more like prostitutes. And it makes the men involved seem less like child predators and more like Johns. And that's unacceptable. I totally agree. Well, I am certain we have not heard the last of this story. And I think our Department of Justice has some explaining to do. And I am interested in seeing what comes of this. I'm grateful that Senator Ben Sass has already called for an investigation. There have been calls on both sides of the aisle for a very thorough review of what's happening in the Department of Justice. And this will be a real test for Bill Barr, because much more, in my opinion, than all of the speculation about the FBI in connection with the opening of the investigations that ultimately led to the Mueller investigation, Mm -hmm. this tests our commitment to transparent justice that is blind. So moving from the Epstein case in New York City all the way across the globe to Kashmir, we have major developments with a highly contested area of the globe. Beth, you did a nightly nuance on Kashmir, so give a little quick one-on-one breakdown for the people. Kashmir is a disputed region between India and Pakistan. It is Muslim majority. The southern and eastern portions of the region, about 45% of it, have been controlled by India. The northern and western parts, about 35% by Pakistan. It is a little bit larger than Idaho and a little smaller than Oregon. That's the size that we're working with here. Under India's constitution, Kashmir has had a special status, which meant this is part of India, but Kashmir can have its own constitution and can make its own laws on everything except defense, communication, and foreign affairs. India has now a party in control of its government that is very Hindu nationalist. And last week, 
India announced that it would be suspending the article of its constitution giving this special status to Kashmir. It sent in thousands of troops in advance of that announcement and put Kashmir under a communications blackout and lockdown. That's been going on for eight days now. People cannot reach their loved ones. They can't really go anywhere. People are hoarding food and medicine. Pakistan stopped bilateral trade with India and expelled India's ambassador. And so the tension is incredibly high in this region. And the people living in Kashmir are terrified about what's going to come next. I read a really interesting article on Lawfare blog that we'll link to, and they were really trying to investigate why now, why India is taking this move. And they drew a lot of analogy to the Trump administration and its approach to campaign promises, which is the party in control of India has been promising this deal, basically, for a long time. And there's some speculations about why didn't they do it the first time they were in power. But the idea is that they feel like it's coming now because there's been lots of talk about a deal between the Taliban and the U.S., which would really empower Pakistan if you're India. That's how you view it anyway. And that they would dial up terrorist operations in India because they would be empowered by the U.S. removing from Afghanistan. You know, you have two basically— administrations, the Trump administration trying to get out of Afghanistan and meet its promises, its campaign promises, and then the party in India trying to meet its its promises to its people, which is sort of the, the longstanding political agenda of privileging Hindus and suppressing Muslims, since Kashmir is majority Muslims. It was really interesting to sort of read that breakdown. And what was really fascinating is that they've done polling inside Kashmir, and you would think that, you know, Every person that lives in Kashmir is not Muslim. And you would think that the the polling would break down along sort of religious lines about who wants to stay with India, who wants to be independent and who wants to maybe be a part of Pakistan. And it doesn't really break down the way that you think it would, which means that it's much more complicated than these political agendas lead you to believe. Before we move on to our main segment on gun policy, we want to note, and we'll talk much more about this on the Nightly Nuance this week, that the administration has been busy. First, it is trying to clamp down on legal immigration. There is a sweeping new policy over 800 pages to try to slow immigration into the United States, reduce the number of people who get permanent legal status, and it is particularly aimed at folks who have any risk of needing government support in any way. I don't know if I'm appalled or in a weird way thankful that at least they're being honest, that this isn't just about concern about illegal immigration. I think that's the narrative, but I don't think their actions for a long time have shown that to be the top priority because they're not just trying to clamp down on illegal immigration, which is what I think the majority of Americans are talking about. They are trying to limit the legal ways that you can get here, either by penalizing legal immigrants who rely on public programs or by limiting the ways people can come here legally and claim asylum. And I think that's something that needs to be more dinner table conversation because I think that tempers flare when we talk about undocumented workers. 
And that's fine. There's a lot to talk about there. It's complicated. And we can have different priorities and different values as far as protecting our own or caring for everybody. But what we all need to be talking about more is the fact that this isn't just about illegal immigration. This is also about legal immigration and preventing the legal pathways to come to this country. And is that something we all want? I had exactly the same reaction. I thought, at least this is honest. Mm -hmm. If I were a journalist for a well-funded news organization, I would spend a lot of time right now telling stories about families who have started businesses and created tons of jobs and contributed mightily to our social and economic and political systems through the channels of legal immigration when they first needed some support as soon as they reached our shores. People who took advantage of government assistance and built out the American dream, because that is what America is made of. And I just think that this move is so divorced from history, from data, from culture, from everyone's lived experience, if we're willing to be truthful about it. And it really upsets me. But I do hope that the transparency of this increases that dinner table conversation and helps people see what's really going on here. But I also think we have to be realistic. There are Americans who have no interest in providing government subsidized housing or food stamps to American citizens. To anyone. That's right. Much To anyone much less legal immigrants. And, you know, I don't, I don't, it's so hard for me to see a way out of that. I had a lot of conversations when I was in California with family members who are so resentful of any benefits going to immigrants. There was a lot of really harsh words for basically California's version of the dreamers, and provides access to financial aid for children who were brought here or for now adults who are brought here as children illegally. And there's a part of me that, like, I get it. I believe that our current economy is not working for everyone. I believe in income inequality. And so I can't, with, you know, honesty and authenticity look at someone and say don't be afraid don't operate out of a scarcity mindset like i i get it i feel that scarcity i feel that that lack that fear of there's not enough but i cannot for the life of me understand why if you are angry about there not being enough you are mad at the people at the bottom why are you not mad at the people at the top with the power, with the ability to change these things, taking their disproportionate share of the spoils? I just that's the part that wears me out. It wears me out. Trump administration is also making changes to the way they enforce provisions of the Endangered Species Act that could clear the way for new mining, oil, and gas drilling and development in places where protected species live. The new rules will make it harder to consider the effects of climate change on wildlife when deciding which species warrant protection and would likely shrink critical habitats for the first time, allowing economic factors to be taken into account when making determinations. This is pretty new, but 
lots of climate scientists are already sounding the alarm on what the impact of this decision making could be. Yeah, I think the economic factor thing is so scary. I mean, like Paducah was supposed to get this riverfront development and there were I think they were mussels and it cost us several million dollars to basically just push it further down the riverfront out of the habitat of this mussels. Like if they were allowed to factor in the economic impact of that decision, God save those poor mussels. And like I also think these stories always have pictures of like bald eagles or animals. Everybody has this sort of anthropomorphized emotional attachment to. But like that's not the point. The point isn't that it's an animal we all love. The point is we all need to go see the Lion King one more time and realize this is all connected and you can't totally destroy a species even though it makes a lot of economic sense and think there won't be impact on everything. I just, ugh. Well, here's what it ought to say if it's going to be honest. It should say short-term economic impact. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Because that's what this is about. If you're moving yep. that in Paducah, then what you're saying is in today's dollars, mm-hmm. the cost to us seems higher than protecting these mussels and their contributions to the habitat. But if you forecast that out and look at the long-term, even strictly dollars and cents impact, it's going to get higher and higher and higher. You know, we are saddling future generations with inordinate amounts of debt, and I do have concerns about that. I am more concerned about the economic debt we're saddling them with that we don't know how to quantify yet. Because we don't understand how severe it's going to be when we have ruined parts of our planet. And Mm so not to sound alarmist about this, but again, if we're going to be truthful about what's going on here, we are substituting short-term prosperity for long-term, I think, devastation in dollars and cents terms as well. Beth, who would you like to compliment this week? I'm going to guess it won't be the Trump administration. Not today. I would like to compliment (laughs) Tulsi Gabbard, who is not someone I think I would vote for under any circumstances in the presidential primary. But I am very appreciative of her service to our country. She is about to take a two-week hiatus from her campaign at a very difficult time to do that. This is a pretty critical period in terms of fundraising, trying to make that next debate, which she's not yet qualified for. But she is still going to take a two-week break to deploy to Indonesia with the Hawaiian Army National Guard. This mission is for a joint training exercise that involves counterterrorism and disaster response. Indonesia is an important partner that the United States has been trying to cultivate, particularly on counterterrorism. And so thank you very much, Representative Gabbard, for everything that you do for our country and for being willing to put this first at a time when that's really inconvenient. Well, I am complimenting the country and leaders of Colombia. Last week, it was reported that Colombia will give citizenship to more than 24,000 undocumented children from Venezuela. These were children born of refugees born in Colombia, and it's a really special, generous, and unique act in today's current political environment. And the quote from the president of Colombia says, he he gave a speech when announcing the measure in Bogota. Today, Colombia gives this message to the world. 
To those who want to use xenophobia for political goals, we take the path of fraternity. And I thought that was so lovely and so encouraging. Next up, we are going to talk about gun policies that are on the table, particularly from Democratic presidential candidates. But in general, getting to we're very upset, all of us about mass shootings. What are we going to do about it? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second-chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system.
President of the United States visited El Paso and Dayton briefly this past week. Everyone is talking about a particular photo that was taken on that trip in which Melania Trump is holding a baby whose parents lost their lives shielding the baby from gunfire. The president is giving a thumbs up and both the president and Melania are looking direct to camera with the kind of smiles that would be appropriate if they were, say, with Olympic athletes who had just won the gold medal. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of commentary out there, some really interesting commentary about this photo, actually. I read a lot of pieces about this. It seems like a non-story, but I think the analysis of it has been really good. And I have a suggestion. This photo has inspired in me a suggestion. Impeach Donald Trump. Did I guess it? That is not where I was going to go with this. Dang, I thought for sure I'd guessed it. I was thinking about how do you assess the capacity of an individual for moments like this? Because there is Mm -hmm, a particular mm -hmm. need in the public from a president in times of disaster. Whether that disaster is gun violence or a hurricane or anything else. And we have seen in our lifetimes presidents with very different skill sets in showing up and caring about people. And there was conversation ahead of the president's visits to El Paso and Dayton about whether he should show up. And the people who favored him showing up, even as they recognized how his language contributed to perhaps the racism that inspired the El Paso shooting. They were saying, look, the office of the presidency still means something, and the president should be here in this time. And so I was thinking about how do we audition people for this portion of the job? And with Trump, everybody keeps saying that we have a reality show president and that the past election was a reality show election and that we're about to have another one. And I thought, you know what? That's not really true. As a reality show connoisseur, I would like to tell you that I don't (laughs) think that's right. I think what we have right now is sort of the bad early 90s Jerry Springer kind of thing happening where it's just let's pit people against each other in these really contrived scenarios. Maybe what we need is more of actual good reality show television where you can see people's vulnerabilities. So here's my suggestion. Instead of another debate, what if we took presidential candidates through like a couple day obstacle course that is the kind of stuff that happens to a president and we actually put them in situations? You have to go comfort a community that has been ravaged by some kind of disaster. And then you need to make a very quick judgment call over retaliating against a country who where maybe the United States base was attacked. The kinds of scenarios that have nothing to do with what your legislative policies look like, but the quick decisions and the quick actions that presidents have to take. I would watch that all day, every day. And I think that would be a much better job interview than our current debate formats. But I feel like if people could have seen early on that the president lacks the empathy and the the sort of emotional intelligence to do well in these situations, I hope that would have mattered because I, I think this photo is very disturbing in a way that lots of us can get our arms around. I like your idea. I mean, it reminds me a lot of what we've already seen a little bit of, which was Pete, Mayor Pete, going back to South Bend after the shooting of an unarmed black man in his community and really facing 
the anger and the grief of that community and I thought a very open and vulnerable way. When Donald Trump was elected, I've talked about this moment before. I just had an aha moment where I thought, I cannot, because I'm, a, I'm an Enneagram One and I'm obsessed with justice. I, in a moment of rare self-preservation, realized I will never, ever get justice when it comes to the individual human being of Donald Trump. And by that, I mean, we could impeach this man tomorrow and indict him the next day, and he could spend the rest of his life in federal prison. And he would never for one moment experience what I define as justice, which is true remorse and a true accounting and facing of the consequences of your actions. He is completely and totally incapable of that. He cannot do it. It doesn't matter. I don't think he just has the capacity. And this moment in El Paso is so reflective of that. Not just the photo. I can absolutely assure you what happened is that the brother of the father who died has said that his his brother was a supporter of Donald Trump. He said that, and that part of Donald Trump's brain clicked on, and that's the face and the hand signal he makes with all his supporters, right? And the fact that he was recorded bragging about, talking about the crowd size at a hospital after a mass shooting, like reason and logic and empathy are just not accessible to him in this situation. And so I just, you know, I can get mad about it, but really at the very beginning, I just sort of said, I'm not going to obsess about him as a human being, understand what he's doing, like coming to justice and, and, and facing fully what he has done. It's just, I don't, it's not something he is capable of or he will ever understand. I'm sure right now he's defending that thumbs up next to that baby. Like he just, it's he can't do it. He just doesn't have the skill set. And I think, honestly, we don't have to have the reality show obstacle course. We know almost every person on that stage, even gaff-ridden Joe Biden, can do a better job of expressing some empathy in a moment like this than Donald Trump. Of course, I really don't want Donald Trump to be our standard. I don't want us to just come a few inches up off the floor but i don't want that to be our standard either but no. i would like to see people in those mo- i would like to be able to compare these candidates in those moments you know what i mean yeah. and not just this kind of moment but lots of different tests but it's not going to be about the moment it's going to be about their life experiences and how they align with those moments like did you see yeah, andrew yang start there. crying about his sons i thought it was yeah, you did because you tweeted about it yeah mm-hmm. i mean i think that it's just it's that moment where you stop being president and you start being a human being and think oh this is just like this and this that's why they're so good in their in their speeches when they're really talking about something that happened to them when cory booker's talking about his parents getting a house when elizabeth warren's talking about her mother's good dress you know like all that stuff you you connect and you see like, oh, they're they're real people and this is their lived experience. I think that's why they work so hard to have Hillary Clinton talk about her mother. She's so good. Um and you really see her drive for 
the care of children when she talks about her mother. Just that stuff is so empathetic and just it gives you a window into who they are and what's important to them. And those moments can do that, too, because I think depending on what it is, it really can touch their own personal life experiences, you know? Well, mass shootings elicit emotion in lots of people. And our episode last week did the same. Everyone, I think it is fair to say, is hot along some set of priorities right now. And so with a little bit of time to look at what different candidates are saying about gun policy, what different representatives are saying about gun policy, we thought we would have a discussion here about gun control legislation and just what to do about this problem in general and what our goals are as we tackle that. I think it would be helpful to start with what what is the goal. I like this aspect of Elizabeth Warren's plan where she starts by announcing, here's what I'm trying to do. I am trying to lower gun crimes by 80%. I think that's very helpful because a place that we get stuck in the debate over guns all the time is trying to convince particularly people who are against additional legislation that The goal is not 100% eradication of all gun crime. We understand, I think everybody, that that is not possible. And so setting that 80% benchmark and just being honest about the fact that we're not going to bat 1,000 on this, I think that's really wise of her. Yeah, I keep thinking about John Oliver, and he shows this footage of the crowd saying, do something, just do something. And so there's a part of me that, like, definitely understands the metrics and the measurement and, like, let's have a finite goal. But I think with this particular issue, there's a lot to gain by just doing something and saying we're just going to start. And we can't promise a certain outcome based on what we are going to start doing. But we are going to start because for so long we've done absolutely nothing. And I think I say that because I want to adjust expectations, because as I said last week, I think the thing that will have the most impact, because it seems to be the primary cause, is the absolute number of guns. And many of the things we're going to talk about today do not touch the actual number of guns in America. And so, you know, what I really want to do is dramatically reduce gun deaths. In order to do that, we're going to have to dramatically reduce the amount of guns in America, But we can't because that's what I want to do, though. Like, I can't stop short because some of the legislation being proposed won't get us as far as I'd like it to. You know, like, I just want us to say, okay, well, we're going to start here and it's not going to give us the results we want immediately. But we're going to break that seal and start doing something and stop living in this world where... Gun control is the third rail, and we don't do anything, and any regulation, any limitation is a complete and total violation of the Second Amendment. Like, I'm just—that, to me, just taking action is one of the most revolutionary things we can do right now with gun control. I want to say, though, I don't think it's fair or accurate to say that we've done nothing. I think it feels like we've done nothing because on a federal level— We have not had landmark legislation since the 90s, and we have had a lot of mass shootings since the 90s. But on the state level, there are lots of gun regulations. There are too many gun regulations on the books across the United States for us to give you a comprehensive look at what are the rules today to purchase a gun. 
And I think it's important if we want to have a good faith discussion with people who really value the right to bear arms and who really cling to the Second Amendment, it's important to acknowledge, yes, there are laws on the books today. There are a lot of them in some states. I'm going to put a link in the show notes that our listener Kelly shared with us that shows in very direct ways how the states that have the strictest gun regulations have the lowest number of gun deaths. Again, it is not perfect. California has the toughest gun laws in the country, and we just had a shooting at the Garlic Festival in California. It is true that people are willing to violate gun laws if they are willing to murder lots of people. But overall, looking at the overall scope of data, states with more gun laws have fewer gun deaths. And I think, again, that's what I like about Elizabeth Warren. I don't really care. It's not that I don't care what the goal is. I care tremendously what the goal is. But I like the articulation of this is not a 100 percent. We are not only looking for solutions that will prevent every mass shooting for the rest of time. What I mean by we haven't done anything is that whatever gains in legislation we've been able to eke out on a state level, you see dramatic rollbacks driven not just at the federal level, but in a national strategy from the NRA to, you know, open carry. There's no regulation, licenseless carry laws. Like, let's just, I mean, that's what we just got in Kentucky. They Mm -hmm. rolled back and got permitless carry. And permitless carry is a national strategy of theirs to perpetuate this narrative that any limitation at all is unacceptable. And I think that's just what I mean. I mean, I there are definitely laws being passed at state levels, but the national strategy of the NRA that has been largely successful at both the federal and state level is we will it's zero tolerance. We will accept no limitations on the right to bear arms. So let's talk about background checks, which are by all polling the most popular restrictions on gun ownership that have been proposed. And those are the two the two policies that passed the House, the two bills that passed the House early this year, both centered on background checks. And I know, Sarah, that you are very active with Moms Demand Action, which is strongly in favor of background check laws. Yeah, I mean, this is really the foundation of the Moms Demand Action strategy. And they argue it's the foundation of any real effort to reduce gun violence. So, You have more than 3.5 million illegal gun sales that have been blocked in the last 20 years by background checks. So about half of Americans still live in a state where a convicted felon, domestic abuser or fugitive can skip a background check by basically finding an unlicensed seller at a gun show or on Facebook or whatever. And you do see when you have these laws requiring Connecticut, for example, passed a law requiring all handgun buyers to pass a background check, both at the point of sale and as a part of the permit process. And it was an associated with a 40% reduction in the crime homicide rate and a 15% reduction rate in the gun suicide rate. By contrast, you see states like Missouri, when they repeal these laws and purchase, you can purchase and there's no permitting process, there's nothing that requires a background check, and you see an increase in firearm homicide, 27% increase in homicide rate in Missouri when they repealed their permit law. I'm fearful that we're going to see that in Kentucky as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So again, though, it doesn't mean we just said Connecticut. Connecticut is the location of Sandy Hook, one of the most horrific acts of mass gun violence in our nation's history. It doesn't mean it's 100 percent cure. 
And I just think we have to go back to that and back to that and back to that. This is not we're going to fix it. This is we're going to start working on it. In that vein, something that I think should have broad public support as well is studying gun violence as a public health issue at the Center for Disease Control. Mm -hmm. Almost Mm -hmm. every one of the Democratic presidential candidates is in favor of this. And I think the public should largely be supportive of this as well. I can't imagine us not wanting to know something. To me, if we have a policy currently that is centered on fear of information, that is a bad policy that we need to change. I spend a lot of time in conversation with one of our listeners over Voxer. And he is a gun rights activist. He has become a friend. I like this person. I think he's smart and thoughtful. And I think he shares my grief over gun deaths in the United States, which is an important foundation. And I think a foundation that almost all of us would find with nearly any human, right, that we can come together over. We want this to stop. And so when I'm talking with him, I often will say, well, what about this? And he'll say, he has kind of this rubric that my proposals are going to be ineffective or unconstitutional. And sometimes he'll throw in ignorant, not directed at me, but at a particular proposal. (laughs) And I think that there is some fairness in his critiques, although I have recently said, look, through this lens, I'm going to strike out on something every single time. Right. If I can come up with something that would be really effective, you're going to say it's unconstitutional. (laughs) And if I can come up with something constitutional, you're going to tell me it's ineffective. And so I got to get out of that box in some way. I think the path out of that box is data that we could be getting from the Center for Disease Control. We have professionals in our government who know how to look at issues like this and tell us at scale. I mean, I think it's fair to critique trying to borrow from Australian gun policy in a country as big and diverse as the United States of America. Great. The CDC understands the scale and diversity of the United States of America. Let's put them on this and let's see what we can learn. I've been reading Jill Lepore's These Truths. Every time I think about this prohibition, basically, on gun violence data, I think about our one of our original sins as a nation, which is slavery. And the fact that did you know they put a basically a, I think it was a 40 or 50 year gag rule at the Constitutional Convention and said, we will not talk about slavery again until for like 50 years. You only do something like that. Because you know something's wrong, you're trying to hide something, or you're trying to avoid something. Like, saying, we're not going to talk about it, we're not going to study it. Just like suicides in prison. Like, I just, I cannot fathom a reason you would want less information. Oh, I can, actually. Nefarious reasons. I can't fathom a good, logical, reasonable, focus on the common good reason you would say, nah, we don't want to know. I think closely related to that is liability for gun manufacturers and gun executives, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. you can say that they should not be liable in a court of law. And I can see a robust debate on that set on that liability. What I think we should not be doing is protecting anybody from the litigation process, because our system of justice, even if you think there are far too many lawsuits, which I would challenge the data on that as well. But. That system of justice is there to bring sunlight to problems. And I think the discovery process 
in gun lawsuits would be extremely valuable to society. I see those issues as really related. We refuse to study it, and we also refuse to put people on trial over it because we don't want the information to come out of that process. We need the information. Whether people are ultimately found civilly liable for gun deaths or not, the information that would come through that process would benefit us as a society as we grapple with these issues. And so I think we ought to lift that protection. Where else do we say we are just going to put our arms around you and protect you from the scrutiny of our legal system? Where else would we be comfortable with that as Americans? I think that is so un-American that we have that law on our books and we should get rid of it. Well, we do that in all kinds of ways, and it's always jacked up. I'm one of my favorite documentaries of all time, Hot Coffee, which is one I used to show to my introduction to business law, was about all the ways we undermine this very democratic idea, which is our tort system, which is you've been injured. We give you a way to address that injury with your peers with your peers. And so we undermine it in all kinds of ways, mediation, medical malpractice laws, torts, just limits on the tort system at all. And this is a prime example of it. I think this is a pretty extreme example, though. It's not Mm -hmm. just cutting away at the process itself or capping damages. It's mm -hmm. immunity, immunity from the transparency of that process. And I don't understand why if we all love capitalism so much and the idea is Let the markets decide, well, if your product is so dangerous that the exposure of market forces and the liability through the tort system makes it unmarketable, then it sounds like the market decided to me. If you can't afford the liability of your product, then that to me says the market is telling you in very clear language, your product doesn't belong on the market. Just saying. Another somewhat capitalist solution coming from Senator Warren is raising taxes on gun purchases, mm-hmm, Love that, which one. I support because I think that's fair. It, it, gun deaths and gun violence enact a very high cost on society. This seems like a good way to reflect that. And I'll go one further and say that I would personally support, in addition to raising taxes on the purchase of weapons and ammunition, I would offer a small tax credit for people who get good gun safety training. That's something that our listener that I correspond with suggests all the time. In connection with other programming, I would be happy to do that. You could be rewarded through insurance. You know, we could and beyond Mm -hmm. taxing, you could just require people to carry insurance for the liability of having that in their house that other people could be exposed to. I think there's a lot of good approaches we can borrow from other dangerous products like cars, like cigarettes. I would love to see what would happen if you took the approach to cigarette regulation that it's a country in South America. And I apologize. I can't remember which one it is. But they elected a doctor and he said, we're not just going to tax the crap out of cigarettes, which we absolutely are. We're also going to remove basically any marketing You get one type of cigarette, you get a black and white box, that's it. If they want it bad enough, they'll purchase it from you. But you don't get lights and you don't get organic. I mean, there are such a thing as organic cigarettes, which blows my mind. And you don't get to market towards women. And you, I mean, think about all the different ways that gun manufacturers market to different groups. And if we just said, no, you're done. If somebody, we, you have a right to bear arms. And if you want a gun, that's available to you. But we're not going to open up this venue for you to prey on people's fears and to market to them. We're going to really regulate the marketing of guns. 
I'd be all here for that. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. We still have cigarettes. Like, I think that this Mm -hmm. higher tax idea is such a good one because it seems unquestionably constitutional. I think it seems really effective compared to lots of the other proposals out there. And I think it does facilitate a fair trade-off in terms of what it costs us to have these guns in the world and what's coming back to help fund those costs. Speaking of which, I would now like to give a shout out to an aspect of Mayor Pete Buttigieg's 
gun proposal that I agree with. And I have actually, over the last week, changed my mind on on this, not on Buttigieg's proposal, but on the subject of domestic terrorism. I have struggled with what it would look like to think of domestic terrorism as a crime and to deal with it separately from laws already on the books and the potential for abuse. But I actually, as I've thought about it more, feel like there's an opportunity here to embrace the reality that terrorism is borderless in 2019. A lot of terrorism has nothing to do with nation states. It's just groups that domestic terrorism is every bit as much of a threat, more than the kind of threat that we're facing from other terrorism by our own government's data that it's reluctantly sharing with us. And so I think this is an opportunity for us to write some new laws that give law enforcement the tools to get in front of domestic terrorism the way they get in front of international terrorism, and also to clarify how we treat suspects of terrorism, whether they are international or U.S. nationals. So I think there's a good chance to do some good work around terrorism generally by criminalizing that. But I really like Buttigieg's proposal to spend a billion dollars on people who are going to sit and read 8chan every day and people Mm. who are going to watch for the internet flags that can help predict these shootings. I think that's I think that's a reasonable, justified expenditure. I hope some of that billion dollars is going to pay for a lot of therapy. People are traumatized Mm -hmm. when they have to read that stuff. Totally agree. I just think that to that terrorism point. I mean, does anybody really think that all the laws we passed after 2001, after September 11th, are still super relevant in 2019? That the world of either international terrorism or domestic terrorism is still the same? Do y'all remember what you were doing in 2001? I was a junior in college. I don't think I even had a cell phone yet. Like the technology, the organization, the just so much of that world, both internationally and domestically, have changed. And the idea that we're all still working around the same post-9-11 framework, to me, also looking at you, Ice, is just bananas. And look, we know that post-2001, the way we treated international terrorism suspects was unacceptable and dangerous for our national security. And so if we start focusing on terrorism at home, the way we do internationally, I think we are going to see more human rights brought to the investigative process. And that's a good thing. So I, I think that would be helpful. How much have you read about Andrew Yang and his tech ideas about mass shooting, Sarah? I think this is fascinating. I have not read that much. Okay. One of the things Andrew Yang wants to do is invest in personalized gun technology that makes it difficult or impossible for someone other than a gun's owner to fire it. I've heard about this. I mean, they've been talking about these for a million years. Is the technology finally there? So he thinks that it could be, and he wants to make sure that that stuff is on sale. And I think this is really good. Provide a tax credit for the full value of upgrading the gun to use these systems or work Mm -hmm. through a buyback program to allow trades of non-personalized guns to personalized ones. Love it. Love it. Yeah. I think that says if you are a sportsman and you want to be out shooting targets or whatever, awesome. Let's not allow your child's fingerprint to actually get a hold of that gun. I mean, I just feel like this is a win-win across the board. I'm for anybody that has a buyback as part of their program. Remember clunkers for cash? Can't we do the equivalent of a gun? 
So bring in your old busted gun and we'll let you cash them in for like a credit to upgrade the technology on the few remaining guns you have. I just think fewer guns. Any way we can use some of these regulations to get to fewer guns is good. I'm here for that. And quite a few people have that. Better O'Rourke is talking about that on a non-voluntary basis. Cory Booker is talking about it. Joe Biden is talking about a voluntary buyback. So you're seeing that in lots of proposals, which is kind of new. I mean, a buyback is a pretty controversial discussion that is becoming very mainstream. I'm here for it. So Joe Biden also came out and called for a new assault weapons ban passed in 1994 and allowed to expire in 2004. There's a lot of really good statistics that the assault weapons ban made a difference. I read some really good background on the Law Center for Gabrielle Giffords organization. And they were just talking about it's sort of exactly what you have mentioned a lot with federal laws, which is we have so little opportunity to reassess and adjust. And it seems like the assault weapons ban is an opportunity where we actually could do that because there were a lot of weaknesses within that assault weapons ban. It had to have sort of two generic features of an assault weapon. Some states do specific assault weapons, which most gun control advocates really push against. Usually one generic characteristic of an assault rifle as what they argue would make in a good assault weapons ban. And so I think we like learned enough. We saw the impact of the 1994 bill. We learned the ways that it was weak and that the way it had loopholes. And so that we really could come forward and have a really good assault weapons ban version 2.0. So I'm here for that. The assault weapons ban makes a ton of sense to me. I also understand the objections to that from gun owners, particularly in that difficulty in classifying what an assault weapon means. Mm -hmm. I, too, cannot fathom why anybody needs military-grade weapons just walking around in society. But I would be willing to put that on the bottom shelf in our suite of possible proposals if we could get some consensus around some of the other things that we've talked about, especially if we could do that tech that prevents somebody from taking an AR-15 and using it in a different context than the owner intended. Well, I think the reason that you don't see why someone would need that military-grade weapon is because the people who own them, I don't think, argue that they need them. They argue that the Second Amendment assures them that right. I mean, again, this is going back to our conversation, which we had a a listener email us and say, you know, you're not being grace-filled, you're being closed-minded, you're not listening. No, I've listened to lots of people on the opposite side of this issue than me. And what I've come to understand is that there is a group of people who believe the Second Amendment allows you to own as many and whatever weapon you want. And with regards to this assault weapons ban and the idea of, well, do I need a military grade weapon? No, you don't. And I I think why I push so hard on that is I think that needs to be described as the extreme position it is. That is an extreme position if you are looking at the American populace and how they feel about the Second Amendment. The majority of Americans do on either side, honestly, do not believe that you the Second Amendment assures you the right to whatever and as many weapons as you want. Most Americans want some sort of conversation about what do you need, what do sportsmen need, what's safe, safe storage, like this idea that has ruled the narrative for so long that the Second Amendment is a zero tolerance, not a law on the book about guns, is an extreme position perpetuated by the NRA. And I'm so thankful 
that it is finally coming to an end, even to the point where Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell are claiming that they would like to look at red flag laws, which are allow courts or family members, teachers, police officers to temporarily confiscate firearms from people who are deemed to be a danger to themselves and others. And I think this one in particular, when you look at the statistics, has a big impact on people at risk for suicide, which is a huge aspect of gun violence that often gets missed. So I hope that Mitch McConnell will stay true to his word. Not something I would ever bet the house on, but they seem to be willing to. It seems like he's banking on maybe a delay. And by the time the Senate comes out, some of this pressure will die down. And I hope that's not the case. And I don't push back against you hard on those statements for a bunch of reasons. Number one, I'm always cognizant in these discussions of how personal this issue is to you. You know, for people who haven't listened for a long time, Sarah lost friends to gun violence at her high school. And so it's not I'm not talking to somebody on the street about this. Number two, I can't dispute the data that more guns equal more gun deaths. It's just true. If I were to say I have a quibble with something that you said here, it is not really that I fundamentally disagree with any of it. It's that I struggle to craft good policy. It doesn't make sense to me to say, okay, every household can have only three guns. You know, anything like that I think would be arbitrary. And I do think there are lots of people out there my in-laws are like this, who have a lot of guns and all of them sit in storage and they do nothing and they're secure and they're not at risk of anything happening. And I don't want to fight with those people. I want to do things that could help solve the problem. And that's why I'm I'm so much more interested in let's study this. Let's figure out what is effective. I love the, the raising taxes. I love the tech. Like, I think there is a lot that we could all agree on. And I would just like us to get unstuck. On this issue, mm-hmm. I would like to pull everybody out of their corners and try to make some progress, because as our listener Lou pointed out on Twitter, you might be dissatisfied with the progress we make, but every little bit of progress could save someone's life. Yep. And so let's do that. Let's make every little bit of progress that we can. And for me, if I'm able to help diffuse the defensiveness on any side by saying, OK, here's what I get from your perspective That feels like my work to do. Well, and let me clarify. When I say it's an extreme position, it doesn't mean I think you're a bad person. Right. Or an extreme person, right? It's a position, not a person. But it is an extreme position. And I'm not going to back down on that because I think that the people who feel that way need to understand that they are in the minority. Okay? It doesn't mean you're a bad person. In the same way that I think that people who believe we should use the death penalty for the worst of the worst. I get it. It's not, a, it's not a value I hold, but I don't think it makes you a bad person. But that position about the Second Amendment is extreme in that it does not reflect the majority of Americans. And I think that the NRA has created an environment where those people feel like everybody feels like that. Let me tell you, they don't. It is extreme position to believe that the Second Amendment assures you as many and whatever weapon you want. That's just the reality of the majority of Americans and how they feel about gun control. And I think what's interesting, too, all these conversations we've had, especially the one about data, I mean, what you can really do, yes, they cracked in on the data, but because we are the United States of America and states have such different laws, we really can see the effect of so much of this. And that's why this whole but Chicago response really wears me out. Because the idea that Chicago has good gun control, which they have had pretty intense gun legislation, much of which which was was struck down by the Supreme Court, 
But the idea that you can just use Chicago as if it's an island among itself and not right on the border of Indiana with extremely lax gun laws really exhausts me. We had a listener who emailed us and said, you know, I wanted to write you. She says, two years ago, I was picked as a jury in a federal court case in Chicago involving the theft of firearms. In short, there was a large train yard on Chicago's south side that is known for frequent robberies. One night, a group of petty thieves broke into the train cart with a simple bolt cutter, and they were unloading boxes of women's saddles. They found several boxes of brand new firearms, 111 total. The manufacturer was shipping the guns from their facility in the northeast to Washington State. The thieves stole all 111 guns, and they were not, they were just guys with bolt cutters, and they hit the streets of Chicago's south side, and to this day, only 19 have been recovered. So this idea that Chicago is just this island unto itself, and it's not affected by, I don't understand why there aren't regulations about how you ship guns, which was also Lindsay's point, and I agree with her, but that this flow of weapons, especially in the states surrounding it, with much less strict gun laws, oh man, that argument wears me out. We have all these different approaches. We can look at what works and what doesn't and how they affect each other. We're not operating in the dark here. One other common refrain from current gun owners is that there are lots of laws on the books. We should enforce those. And I think that's true. I also think we should fix those current laws where they have problems. And so before we conclude this section, I want to be sure to mention Senator Klobuchar, who is advocating right now to close what is called the boyfriend loophole. So if you have committed an act of domestic violence right now, you are prevented from having a weapon. I don't know all the details of that program. What Senator Klobuchar is highlighting is that that is only true when you are married. And it's important to recognize that people who are unmarried and in domestic relationships with one another are still victims of violence. And we should close that loophole regardless of the marital relationship. That seems like a no-brainer to me. So there are lots of no-brainers. There are lots of full-brainers that we'll have to spend more time talking about. But what we have to do is start moving on this. And I think and I hope that's something we can all agree on. So, Beth, I don't know about you, but outside politics, I've been thinking a lot about the death of Toni Morrison. Her writing meant a lot to me, a lot to people all across the country. I love this quote I read from Rachel Kadzi Gansa. I hope I'm saying her name right. She said, Morrison democratically opens the door to all of her books only to say, you can come in and you can sit and you can tell me what you think. And I'm glad you are here. But you should know that this house isn't built for you or by you. I love that, too. I mentioned on Instagram that I love what President Obama has said about how he was privileged to breathe the same air as Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of wonderful writing about her. I highly recommend that you listen to her Nobel Prize acceptance speech if you haven't already. And I know, Sarah, you wanted to end the show with some of her words today. Being your own story means you can always choose the tone. It also means that you can invent the language to say who you are and how you mean. But then I am a teller of stories and therefore an optimist, a believer in the ethical bend of the human heart, a believer in the mind's disgust with fraud and its appetite 
for truth, a believer in the ferocity of beauty. So from my point of view, which is that of a storyteller, I see your life as already artful, waiting, just waiting and ready for you to make it art. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We'll be back in your ears on Wednesday over at The Nuance Life. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.